0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Joy Rhodey about her new book, Armed with Expertise, The Militarization of American Social Research During the Cold War. Joy, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me. Could you tell us a
0: little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so um, I am uh, an assistant professor of public policy and history at the University of Michigan. Although I'm delighted to say that as of September, I'll be associate professor. Um, and so uh, my training is in the history of science and technology, um, but I work in pretty sort of policy forward settings. And so um, With my work, I kind of try to inhabit this intersection between history and public policy. How did
0: this particular book come about?
1: Not in any direct way. It's a roundabout story. So I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago, where I studied anthropology. I honestly couldn't understand why anyone would study history. I thought you memorized facts and dates like we did in high school. Um, So I started studying anthropology, and I just had this kind of moment where I thought, you know, this isn't my future. I don't want to go into the field. I actually find the the discipline really sort of strange. How did this discipline come about? Where sort of white westerners, you know, head off to the South Pacific or to sub-Saharan Africa and study people? Um, and so I started getting really interested in the history of the discipline of anthropology. Um, and I was really fortunate to be at the University of Chicago when George Stocking was there. Um, who uh, really kind of put the history of anthropology on the map. And I started studying the role that anthropology played in sort of the exercise of state power in the United States. And that project led me into graduate school um, in the history of science and led me uh, into this project. And I really started with the the story of Project Camelot, which appears in the middle of the book. So um, Project Camelot was for social scientists in the 1960s supposed to be this Manhattan project of Um, social science. It was supposed to do for counterinsurgency research, you know, what the nuclear bomb had done uh, for for American victory in World War II. And Project Camelot brought a lot of academic social scientists into the study of counterinsurgency and national security problems when it was exposed um, by a number of scholars in Chile uh, as a kind of effort by the U.S. military to Uh, let's say, control and influence other nations, Um, it was exposed by anthropologists as this sort of terrible ethical uh, malpractice. Uh, And so I got really interested in that, and it led me into looking at the Special Operations Research Office, which is the kind of hybrid national security social science center of research that animates the book more broadly.
0: Project Camelot definitely was a a big, I think, midpoint, especially with with the book. Um, Could you talk maybe a little bit about how this use of social science started in modern U.S. history? Yeah, absolutely. So during World War II, a lot of social
1: scientists, so political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, uh, psychologists and social psychologists really mobilized for the war effort. And this was an eye-opening experience for them where they realized, one, that they had really important kinds of policy knowledge that were relevant to American national security. And two, that they could combine their scholarly passion you know, for understanding social problems um, with American state interests. And after the war, um, a number of social scientists kind of stayed on in those kinds of capacities. As the Cold War started to harden, the US military started to look um, more deeply into ways that social scientists could help them fight the battle for hearts and minds, right? So while many physicists, um, and engineers were mobilized to build weapons. Social scientists mobilized to do things like um, help better understand how to persuade folks in Eastern Europe or in the developing nations that they didn't want to turn to communism, but that capitalism and democracy was was the wave of the future. Um, so they so the military funded research into um, psychological persuasion and psychological warfare, and with the sort of turn of decolonization and the rise of revolution in the third world, the U.S. military turned especially to anthropologists, sociologists, and political scientists to try to understand basically how to foster stability in the developing world, how how social change was happening, and how to circumvent violent social revolution. And the places where this is most familiar, I think, to most Americans, places like the RAND Corporation, um, which were established as military funded, but independent sites that produced social scientific research for the American government. Um and I look more in the book at the, what I call the rank and file of that kind of work. So the Army, well, RAND was created by the Air Force, the Army created um, the Special Operations Research Office, which was affiliated with American University in Washington, D.C. And there they had a staff of independent researchers working specifically on military problems of social change from the mid-1950s um, through the late 1960s.
0: And just turning back to uh, Project Camelot, could you talk a little bit more about what that is and what its impact was um, after its cancellation?
1: Yeah, definitely. So Project Camelot was supposed to be a multimillion dollar study, which is big money in the social sciences, as I'm sure um, a number of your listeners know, a multimillion dollar study that was going to start in 1964, And the idea was that it was really going to be a multi-pronged attack on the problem of counterinsurgency. The idea that motivated Camelot was that um, there was something about communism that was appealing to folks in the developing world. But this was kind of a psychopathology. What Camelot was supposed to do was to understand the kinds of social, psychological, and cultural mechanisms that led to this aberrant form of social change that would lead to the outbreak of revolution. And the idea was that if you could understand in enough, in enough depth, historical and contemporary instances of revolution, you could figure out the social patterns that preceded revolution and actually figure out how to identify a growing revolution and circumvent it before it happened. The study was... Uh, run or was supposed to be run by academic social scientists who were affiliated with a Special Operations Research Office. So independent of the military, but it was funded by the U.S. Army. Now, this is in 1964. So this is a period in which folks in Latin America, folks in the developing world are skeptical of repeated U.S. interventions in their region. What happened to Camelot was, Uh, kind of no fault of the designers themselves. In 1964, a social scientist who was loosely affiliated with the project went down to Chile, and he started looking for collaborators on the project. The idea with Camelot was that they were going to do field research um, in a number of nations in the global south. But this particular social scientist named Hugo Nutini misrepresented the project to his counterparts in Chile. He said that it was funded by the National Science Foundation, uh, and he said that it was going to be a project in basic social science. When scholars there got wind of the fact that it was actually a project funded by the U.S. military, uh, it really did spark a global outcry. And it led to the project being canceled. It was quite embarrassing for social scientists, actually. So Robert McNamara gets called to Congress and he has to explain why the U.S. has this military funded project meddling in Latin America. So the project itself gets canceled. And the story in um, especially for anthropologists for a long time was we learned our lesson. We're not going to work with the military. We're not going to meddle in foreign countries. But in fact, what ended up happening was um, that Project Camelot uh, lived on in different names. So it was broken up into a smaller set of components. They renamed the Special Operations Research Office. Uh, They gave it a new name to try and uh, avoid publicity. And The work carried on just sort of outside of the view of academic social science. And so I use the story of Camelot in the book to make the broader point that while efforts to expose military-funded social science on university campuses in the middle of the 1960s. And, these, and Camelot is a precursor to another set of stories that happened during the Vietnam War. So those efforts were really intended both to get military-funded research off of American University campuses, and also to rein in what many social scientists worried was a growing power that the military had over the direction of social scientific research. But what really ended up happening was that research got driven underground. Um, It got classified, it got removed from public view, and it carried on outside of the purview of academic social science, and therefore outside of the purview of things like peer review.
0: (laughs) And how did the Vietnam War affect the relationship between academia and the military?
1: You know, the problems that Camelot suffered from were um, just exploded, I think, into into the broader public view, and, and the stakes were higher in the Vietnam War. So social scientists played a really um, Central role at some uh, in some locations during the Vietnam War. Um, A lot of research at Rand, a lot of research at the Special Operations Research Office, again geared towards understanding and circumventing counterinsurgency, um, geared towards uh, things like figuring out how to run pacification projects on the ground in Vietnam, and also carrying out psychological warfare programs, psychological operations programs. The Vietnam War really led activists, um, one, you know, to push against what they saw as the growing national security state. Uh, And so, of course, famously at Columbia, at Berkeley, uh, at a number of universities, by the late 1960s, there's a very visible outcry against any form of military-funded research, whether it's social scientific or physical and natural scientific and engineering on university campuses. The Vietnam War, I think, really called attention in this regard to the dense relationships between science and social science on the one hand, and national security issues, agencies, problems on the other hand. And so the anti-war movement, a piece of the anti-war movement, um, took on that effort to reduce the footprint of the Pentagon on... um, research in general in the United States. And again, it was a similar story as with Camelot, however, where uh, anti-war activists successfully closed down a number of military-funded and military-affiliated research programs on campuses across the United States. And this is true um, for sort of military munitions and materiel projects, as well as for the social sciences. So in the 1960s and the early 1970s, dozens of of research institutes that are tied to the U.S. military are shut down. But for many of them, they're shut down in name only. And they move, they simply move the personnel into different institutions off of university campuses, but institutions that continue to do the same kinds of research they had done before, only now outside of the purview of the academic norms of the disciplines that they're tied to or that they were initially tied to. And so I think what happens with the Vietnam War is, you know, the politics of expertise that shape these research domains shift dramatically so that you get uh, increasingly a wedge between academic research and military funded think tank type research.
0: So throughout time, warfare has involved specialized knowledge. How is the modern use of social science different? And has the increase in social science in national security caused an increase in militarization?
1: It's a really interesting question. Um, let me see. There's a lot going on there. So you know, I think for the social sciences, you know, over time, if you take the 20th century United States. I mean, the key difference is that there is still continued uh, social science research. You know, there's an increase in the use of social science research by the state, um, by military agencies, by intelligence agencies, really from the post-war period to the present. I think one of the most important shifts is in which disciplines um provide that kind of research, and also which kinds of institutions provide that support to military agencies. So uh, in areas like anthropology, scholars are often attacked if they have anything to do with the military. Um, That wasn't the case in the 1940s, it wasn't the case in the 1950s, but by the 1960s, the sense of ethics and the sense of, of power relations between social science and the military had changed such that for anthropologists, that became a place that you don't go. And so that's a form of expertise that it's very difficult for the military to access. The same is true of sociology, but it's not true of fields like political science, where international relations scholars and comparative politics experts have really been able to fill in that gap and claim the kind of claim war and counterinsurgency as their domain. So, I mean, that's kind of the disciplinary story of the impact. I think you still see a big political scientific imprint, but you don't see an anthropological imprint, for example. And that means that the state gets access to certain ways of knowing the world and not others. Um, In terms of fostering militarization, it's such a good question. So the concept of militarization really animates the book. And the idea is that... um, that basically over the period of from the post from the post-war to at least the 1980s, the relationship between social scientists and the military allowed the military to claim a kind of more domain in the re- in the area of American foreign policy. Um, and so so I make the argument in the book that social science enabled and fostered this. The State Department has not traditionally had a very deep or thoroughgoing relationship with social science. And there are many sectors in the State Department that for a long time have been really skeptical of social science. And so what happened uh, with, with the military funding of social science is that it really kind of allowed the military to claim things like social change as uh, within its purview. And so in that sense, I think that it did foster the militarization, um, both of social science and of American politics, I mean, and American foreign policy. And I think that we see that today where we have, you know, we've seen over the course of the last 50 years, a weakened State Department. And of course, we can't claim that social science caused that shift. But I think it's certainly part of that shift where, where scholarly expertise that carries a lot of clout and a lot of authority has been mobilized by military sites, much less than sort of civilian sites of foreign policy knowledge.
0: In the book, you lay out an argument where you kind of, you look at the role of science in society and the ethical questions that arise from the use of science to achieve political aims, what is an unethical use of social science in the national security realm? And how do we leverage social science to make good policy in an ethical way? Such an important question, and
1: it's so difficult to answer. So I think we've seen um, in recent years some examples of just a clearly, unquestionably unethical mobilization of social science. Um, what, one example being... Psychologists' involvement in the recent um, torture program at Guantanamo, which was exposed uh, through a big report a few years ago, and basically, there's uh, been very strong evidence by independent investigators that an, a, f- a few high up officials in the American Psychological Association kind of allowed the the goals and desires and the money of um, U.S. intelligence agencies to shape a, a watered-down code of ethics, and and to also lead them to look the other way when social when psychologists were involved in advising um, and possibly torturing people. Uh, the details of the involvement aren't totally clear. So that, I think, is an obviously unethical mobilization of knowledge, right? And we see this as a really big, this is why people are concerned in social science, or when people get concerned in cases where social science is mobilized for security ends, because, you know, part of social scientific knowledge allows you to manipulate people in ways that they may or may not be aware of. And so it seems to not only violate, you know, human rights norms, but also violate Um, kind of our own ethical senses of autonomy. There are so many areas where there's just not ethical agreement um, across disciplines or across different locations. And one of the real challenges, I think, that arises at the interface of social science and national security agencies is that many social scientists have very different goals with what they're doing then national security agencies do, right? They are pursuing different ends and it becomes difficult to disaggregate those ends in contexts, especially where there's not a lot of money available for social science research from other locations. I'm really reluctant to kind of point to here, you know, here's the blueprint for carrying out social science research in the context of national security concerns, funding, spaces, ethically. The conclusion that a lot of the folks that I wrote about who thought about this issue during the Vietnam War, the conclusion that they came to was that each scholar had to really figure that out for themselves. And I think that that's right. But I think that one of the keys to figuring that out isn't just trying to follow the ethical codes of your disciplinary association on paper, and all of those codes are different and they're debated and there's a lot of disagreement about them. But I think the, the best way forward is when actors on all sides can be very clear about, one, what are the goals of the project? And when projects get framed in military terms things start to get really fuzzy. So the challenge with Camelot was that what some people said was, this is just a study of of sort of social change. How does social change happen in modernizing nations? But it was framed in the language of counterinsurgency, which of course implies the imposition of state power. And I think it's really important for scholars and for program managers to be clear about the goals and to be clear about the extent to which social science can help foster security and the extent to which it's it's really just going to raise more questions or by saying that it is advancing security, it's actually um, kind of selling snake oil.
0: You mentioned um, that different participants can have different goals in mind. And I think you, you talk about this throughout the book, that ideally scholarly research has this, um, this sense of neutrality about it or the goal of gaining knowledge while political institutions of, of whatever kind are often focused on the achievement of a mission or a goal. Um, is that the tension you're talking about? And if so, can you just expound on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so um, it is the tension that I'm talking about, but I think one important kind of twist that I would put on it is the claim of scholarly neutrality is itself uh, suspect would be the wrong word, but it's, you know, it's a framing device. It's a way to try to set scholarship off from politics. And of course, Scholarly expertise is always political, right? It implies a kind of power, a kind of knowledge that other people don't have. But when you look at folks who are operating in um, these tense spaces where scholarly norms um, can potentially come into conflict with broader norms about serving the state, people do have a lot of different ways of going about it. So in one of the chapters of the book, I profile three different social scientists who took three different approaches to this problem. One of them was, um, was a political scientist named Earl DeLong, and his vision was kind of, was the vision that scholarly neutrality and objectivity could be set off from politics. So he said, you know, we will provide the knowledge, but the state will decide what to do with it. I think that perspective really doesn't hold water in a post, the post-Vietnam environment where scholars really came to recognize that scientific knowledge itself is a form of power and isn't neutral, you know, regardless of, of the conditions under which it's being carried out. Other scholars would take the perspective, which I think is basically what I was just advocating for. Although I, you might be able to tell and myself not, I, I haven't come to my own resolution on these issues, but um Another political scientist who carried out work for the military was named Shirley Mintz, and she was an expert on Indonesia. And she said, to the extent that that my work for the U.S. government will help further decolonization and help further democratization, I will work in those domains. So she was very careful to consider her own norms and values and those of the programs with which she worked. And she did actually pull out of projects that she thought were overly manipulative um, and were ethically problematic. Other scholars make the argument that I think also has proven to be misguided. I talk about a scholar named Robert Boguslaw, who was a sociologist who had worked for Rand, and then he came to the Special Operations Research Office to work on Project Camelot. And he thought that he would be able to sort of infiltrate the norms of the American government and demilitarize American military action by bringing social science to the table. And I think that perspective is, um, I mean, while it's laudable in terms of its goals, misrecognizes the extent to which any particular scholarly program has any kind of power. So, you know, there's there's such a variety of perspectives that scholars can inhabit. And I think that the real challenge is for scholars who choose to withdraw their expertise from the state, from national security agencies, there are other people who will step in. And I think that what we saw in the fallout from the Vietnam War is that the people who stepped in weren't providing very sound scholarly knowledge and really weren't concerned at all about ethics. So there's a real danger in taking the perspective, just sort of, you know, I'm not going to go there. But, you know, it's hard to figure out where assistance becomes complicity. And I think it has to be figured out on a case-by-case basis.
0: You mentioned the funding issue, and um, it kind of ties into another theme that runs throughout the book. Um, you talk about the, the idea of the garrison state and also the role of non-governmental entities to include private industry, um, both as a cause and a consequence of war. Could you talk more about the the idea of the garrison state and kind of what you mean with the with the financial aspects of those other players in in this space
1: yeah sure, so and this kind of ties back to your question about militarization as well. so the concept of the garrison state um was popularized by Harold Laswell, who was arguably one of the most important and influential social scientists from the 1930s through the 1950s or 1960s. And his concern was was this. It was that as, as the United States put itself increasingly on a war footing in the context of the Cold War, and as more and more aspects of civilian life became wrapped up in the language and and the concerns about security that the United States or any other state that went about these kinds of efforts could become a garrison state could become a state that was dominated by military and security concerns and for him he was he was really trying to point to an irony which is that all of the efforts that were carried out in the name of U.S. national security during the Cold War were carried out in the name of protecting democracy. But he was saying, look, there, you know, there is the risk of turning from democracy to totalitarianism or to militarization that comes from this thoroughgoing effort to to, you know, protect democracy by full on mobilization um, in all domains or in so many domains of civilian life. Now, Americans, policymakers, social scientists, regular citizens—they worried about this problem in the 1950s. It was a—I mean—it was a real concern. Um, and so, so I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the story of the relationship between the Cold War and social science isn't one in which the the military is is militarizing social science for its own ends and isn't worried about a garrison state. They're worried about it. And so, the solution to not overly militarizing scientific research, including social science, was the creation of private institutes. Um, they're called federal research contract centers, FCRCs. And what they were were sites where you could bring together experts of any stripe. And they're working in a in a space they're not uh, they're not working within a government agency. And so they're ideally not Uh, not confined to and constricted by the needs of the agency, they can bring in objective expertise from outside of the state. So the goal there is to actually be able to preserve a non-militarized space. I think in the book, I really try to um, make the argument that this didn't actually solve the problem. Uh, of avoiding militarization. In fact, it enhanced it by allowing military interests to move into ostensibly independent intellectual spaces.
0: You include an interesting quote um, from Luis Alvarez, a physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project um just reading here from the book it's it says if world war 1 had been a chemist's war and world war 2 the physicist's war then world war 3 might well have to be considered the social scientist's war even without a formal kind of world war 3 situation was he still right um you know <laughs>
1: I, that raises the interesting question that's so hard to answer with historical evidence, which is, to what extent did the knowledge that these folks produced change or really profoundly influence the direction of American national security policy, American foreign policy? And scholars have staked out a number of different positions on this issue. So Bruce Kuglik has argued um, that basically the kinds of folks that I write about and the kinds of folks that Alvarez is referring to were blind oracles. So they were basically just sort of telling um, policymakers what they wanted to hear. uh, Or if they weren't, then they were essentially useless. I don't think that that's right. Um, I think they had some influence, but I wouldn't say that the, that whatever sub-World War Three situation um, the Cold War was was the social scientists' war. I mean, in terms of funding, while the amount of funding was massive for social science, the amount of funding for, you know, physical science counterinsurgency projects were much higher. I do think that some of the concepts that emerged from social science in this time period, like modernization, um were really influential in in certain sectors of the US state. But I, I would I would say that Alvarez was overstating the case.
0: We've seen the decline of conventional warfare and an increase in asymmetrical conflicts where counterinsurgency is key to military strategy. You've touched on this a little bit, but um, can you talk about where social scientists have been involved in the development of counterinsurgency knowledge and what potential issues you see from that work? Yeah, that's a good question.
1: Um, You know, I don't think that actually a whole lot, uh, I don't think that from the Cold War period they had a whole lot of impact on the way that counterinsurgency was conceptualized and fought. Um, they wanted to, but I I wouldn't say that. For example, things like the Strategic Hamlet program, you know, where individuals are moved, relocated in an attempt to insulate them from a communist insurgency. I don't that it's hard to tie that directly to social scientific knowledge. I think that there were there were many efforts made by anthropologists and area studies specialists to really push for a more kind of cultural understanding um, so that when the military gets involved in certain places around the world, they have a better understanding of the people who they're dealing with. But I don't think that that was very influential during the Cold War. We saw again um, a return to to that kind of effort in the war on terror, especially under General Petraeus. And there, a number of anthropologists were mobilized, a new counterinsurgency manual that makes explicit reference to culture and that draws extensively from anthropological literature, some sociological literature, had some traction for a while. Um, But that too, has not had a lasting impact. I mean, I think that there's still, it's still a matter of debate within the military community, the extent to which counterinsurgency is actually a, a, a cultural and a social and a political project rather than a, a sort of military pacification project. A number of anthropologists have tried to step in and do what they call anthropologize the military by um Actually, the, uh, being embedded with and working with troops deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan through the humanitarian system. But that program also got shut down. I mean, it's just counterinsurgency is such an intractable problem um, that we have clearly not figured out how to get our hands on. And social science in that domain has made promises but not delivered. And I, I don't, I mean, I'm a historian, so I like to retreat to history. I don't have any idea what the way forward is there. Um, but so far, we, ha- we haven't seen a lot of progress.
0: You, you bring about some kind of key themes of things you observed in kind of the Cold War period. Do you see any of those issues repeating themselves as we go forward in kind of this war on terror period that you mentioned?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in general, even beyond the war on terror, although it's, I think it's become a critical problem in the context of the war on terror, you see real divides in terms of what scholarly disciplines are willing to uh, work with um, the various agencies of the national security state So the human terrain system, which was created to embed area experts, anthropologists, political scientists, sociologists, who were specifically familiar with conditions in Afghanistan or Iraq, really failed to mobilize people who had that area expertise and had had a lot of kind of critical intellectual capacity. I mean, they ended up mobilizing a lot of graduate students who needed money to fund their PhDs. Um, And that, you know, and people in the anthropological community who worked in that program were attacked very, uh, very viciously, actually, at meetings. Um, At the same time... You know, I mentioned earlier that political science has sustained, a, I think, a much better relationship in this regard. But a lot of that research is um, heavily quantitative. And, it you know, there's sort of questions among folks in policy domains about the extent to which that usefully informs what they're doing. And so I think that we, st- we have this problem that we had in the Cold War, which is, you know, there must be ex- social scientific expertise out there that can help us better understand and participate in international affairs how do you get access to that knowledge? How do you um, package that knowledge, produce that knowledge in ways that meets the ends of both the funding, the patrons of the research, the funders, right? And that's typically very applied. And the interests of the scholarly community, which is typically, you know, applied work in the scholarly community, um, typically is treated as having sort of less gravitas, right? So I think those concerns, which transcend the Cold War and the war on terror and aren't specific to them, definitely remain. I mean, the intelligence community and, and the, the military community are aware that there's knowledge out there that they want access to that they feel like they, they can't get. There's kind of a lack of trust, and that lack of trust really was built up and extended during the Vietnam War, and it definitely um, continues.
0: The Cold War institutions you talked about that were involved with some of the uh, research projects initially that seemed to be more of a formal – Arrangement with military institutions. And as those have either dissolved or, or changed, and then seeing the, the change of the relationship with academia over time through the Vietnam War, you talk about contracting and the, the funding streams and how that all feeds into some of these themes that you're talking about. Could you, could you speak about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, part of why the uh, the way that science funding has been set up um, from mission agencies since World War II is typically through research contracts. Uh, so, a so a set of scholars will get a contract or a grant to fulfill a certain need. The FCRC system, which set up those institutes that I talked about before, that just had a big contract to do, you know whatever work they're going to do there. Now the system is much more based on um, individual contracts for scholars or sets of scholars. So there's various, um, you know, defense department programs where scholars who are already sort of attuned to the landscape and interested in working in defense sites will, you know, submit uh, their interest uh, in receiving a contract or a grant. And so the work in that sense... um, with the demise of the FCRC system for social science has become uh, less centralized. It's much more decentralized. There are other projects that have kind of tried in the context of the war on terror to, to recreate, I think, a a deeper expertise in national security problems through contracts. So, you know, defense secretary Gates created the Minerva initiative, which um, provides grants to social scientists who want to work specifically um, on a set of programs that the Defense Department has identified as being particularly critical. And so there you've got teams of researchers who are doing, you know, really interesting big data research, um, using social media to track radicalization, um, doing sort of area studies work on the rise of China. Um, but all of that is really happening in a sort of private contracting capacity rather than within these institutions. And so I think it's it, it creates a system where it's hard to know uh, it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on and to know what kind of impact it's having, both you know in terms of scholarly impact, um, national security impact, but then also impact in these things that I worry about more, which is impact on the, sort of the politics of knowledge and the direction of research.
0: Yeah, finally you've touched on this a little bit and it and your background in in the book is definitely has a multidisciplinary approach. Can you speak to how involvement or or distancing from the military has colored different disciplines? Um I know you've talked about being involved with anthropology, but has this kind of um this engagement with the military fundamentally changed some disciplines within academia? That's a really good question. And I think I'm, I'm nervous to
1: answer it because I'm sure that people within the disciplines would probably see things differently. Um, Certainly uh, within anthropology and sociology, there's a real ethic of non-involvement for the most part. Um, and so the result for those disciplines is that they, they do appear to be less policy relevant in these domains. They're kind of written off when you talk to people in, um, in military sites. Psychology is interesting because psychology has had a long relationship to the military, especially, you know, when you think about um, individual psychology, soldier morale um PTSD and these kinds of things and so um, but sociology or psychology is also such an enormous discipline that um, it can maintain that relationship with the military and there there are streams of research that exist but that don't I guess they don't feed out into or color the discipline as a whole because it's so enormous. I think for political science it's you know it's been a good, It's been a good source of funding. It's been a good source of research questions. The continued relationship between political science and, you know, sites of national security concern provides the kind of money that's necessary to do research. It can provide access to kinds of knowledge that you just can't get if you're not hooked into those areas. And I think for political science, it's really given the discipline a lot more. public clout compared to the other social sciences. And then finally, I haven't talked about economics at all. And it's partly because strangely, I mean, in most policy domains, economics is king. Um, But when it comes to issues of national security, of course, economics matters, but the kinds of questions that are important to national security aren't the kinds of questions that necessarily excite economists. And so economics has existed happily without being heavily engaged in these areas.
0: Yeah. And you make a good point, And you mentioned this in the book too, is that if you don't have some involvement, then there's a large amount of data that you don't have access to. And you talked about the classification issues and some of that too. So without, without access to the information, it's really impossible to, to do more work.
1: Yeah, and that that kind of reinforces the problem of, you know, once you refuse to operate in certain domains, you just, you know, what what for scholars who, who make that refusal is a is a very firm ethical stance, and I think a respectable one. It does mean that you don't,
0: you, you know,
1: you don't have influence at all, um, and and that's a, a concerning trade off.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today about your book. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, could you share what you're working on now? Yeah. So, um, because I'm a
1: glutton for punishment and can't get enough of this, um, I'm working on a book that looks at what happened to the relationship between social science, um, and And the national security state with the advent of computers becoming so critically important to a lot of different social scientific fields. So alongside some of the research that I read about uh, in the first book, the U.S. military and intelligence agencies were also funding research that um, really intentionally tried to computerize political science in order to be able to build um, predictive models of conflict, in order to basically circumvent them before they happened. And that research really helped to give rise to uh, one of the key kind of disciplinary norms in international relations now, which, which is these you know, large end computational studies of international relations. So I'm looking uh, in the book at that and I'm I'm getting especially interested in the ways that computers changed what social scientists thought they could and couldn't know about international affairs. So um, along with computers comes this realization that uh, human minds are are highly limited in their ability to understand global relationships. There's so much going on. You need the computer to understand. And so the book is really partly about um, the quest to build technical solutions to national security problems by building predictive computer programs. Uh, And it's also a book about how the introduction of computing to the social sciences changed how we understand human rationality, human reason, the ability of humans to make decisions in the context of complex and really dangerous situations.
0: I look forward to hearing more about that in the future. Thank you again for being on the show today. Thanks
1: so much for having me. It was fun.
0: Dr. Joy Rohde's book, Armed with Expertise, The Militarization of American Social Research During the Cold War, is available now from Cornell University Press and will be released in paperback in September of this year. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.